The Murder Minute podcast contains descriptions of real-life true crime cases. Some details may be disturbing, and listener discretion is advised. This is Murder Minute. I'm your host, Mrs. Smitty, and today is Monday, August 30th, 2021. Today on Murder Minute, the story of a woman so driven by greed that she decided to kill her own husband, but she didn't stop there. But first, your true crime headlines. A Pennsylvania man who is serving a life sentence for the rape and murder of a school teacher in 1992 is requesting a new trial. 25-year-old Christy Marac was preparing to leave for work on the morning of December 21, 1992, when someone forced their way into her townhome and overpowered the young woman. She was viciously raped and beaten, then strangled to death with her own sweater. The case went unsolved for more than 25 years until advances in DNA technology led to the identification of a suspect. Through the use of familial DNA matching, police identified her killer as Raymond Rowe, a well-known local DJ. Rowe was arrested in June of 2018, and in January of the following year, he pleaded guilty to Marac's murder, for which he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole plus 60 to 120 years for other related crimes. Last week, Roe returned to court to request a new trial, claiming that he is actually innocent but was coerced by his defense team to accept a plea. In court filings, Roe now claims to have had consensual sex with Marac that morning, but says that someone else was responsible for her murder. In California, The man responsible for the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 had his 16th opportunity for parole, and this time he was recommended for release. 77-year-old Sirhan Sirhan appeared remotely in front of the California Parole Board on Friday. He has served 53 years in prison for the murder of Senator Kennedy, the brother of President John F. Kennedy, and a candidate for president himself at the time of his assassination. Senator Kennedy was shot and killed at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, just after delivering a victory speech following the California primary. Sirhan was sentenced to death for the crime, but his sentence was commuted to life in prison after the United States Supreme Court briefly outlawed the death penalty in 1972. Speaking to the Associated Press earlier this year, Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon said that he idolized Senator Kennedy and mourned his assassination, but was standing firm in his belief that a prosecutor should have no role in deciding if a prisoner should be released. That decision, said Gascon, should be left up to the parole board. Two of Senator Kennedy's sons were supportive of Sirhan's release. Douglas Kennedy, who was just a toddler at the time of his father's murder, spoke at the virtual hearing, calling Sirhan a human being worthy of compassion and love. The two-member parole board recommended Sirhan's release, but the final decision will be made by the governor. A surf instructor accused of murdering his two children is undergoing psychological evaluation while in federal custody. 40-year-old Matthew Coleman allegedly drove his children, 10-month-old Roxy and 2-year-old Kaleo, to a ranch in Mexico, where he killed them with a spearfishing gun. He was arrested when he tried to cross the border and returned to the United States. According to charging documents, Coleman told investigators that he was motivated by the QAnon conspiracy theory, which believes that former President Donald Trump is secretly battling a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. The 10-page criminal complaint stated that Coleman said he was enlightened by QAnon and Illuminati conspiracy theories and was receiving visions and signs revealing that his wife possessed serpent DNA and had passed it on to his children. 
Coleman is being held in protective custody at an undisclosed location as he awaits a psychiatric evaluation. He has not yet entered a plea. Those were your true crime headlines. After the break, our main story. Lynn Womack could never resist a man in uniform. The young 911 dispatcher had aspirations of being a police officer herself and was known to frequent places where cops hung out. She had dated several police officers before she met Glenn Turner. Glenn worked as a police officer in Cobb County, Georgia. His friends described him as good-natured and easygoing, and his disposition, paired with his big round belly, earned him the nickname Buddha. Lynn pursued Glenn heavily after that first meeting in 1992, showering him with lavish gifts and tickets to sporting events. Glenn fell hard for Linda, and by August of 1993, the pair had wed. Glenn's family and friends weren't exactly thrilled with the union. Lynn had developed a reputation within the local law enforcement community as a relentless flirt, and she had dated several other officers in Glenn's department before their marriage. During his best man toast at Glenn and Lynn's wedding reception, Glenn's brother James joked that he felt like he was attending a funeral rather than a wedding, and that he didn't see things working out, but hoped for the best. Glenn's close friends made bets on how long the marriage would last, and as it would turn out, it wasn't long before trouble started to brew. On the couple's honeymoon, Lynn was reportedly furious with Glenn for booking them on a more budget-friendly cruise than the luxury cruise that she had wanted. It wasn't long after the honeymoon that their love life also began to fall off, and the couple were sleeping in separate beds before their first anniversary. Still, Glenn's friends said that he doted on his wife and tried his best to make their marriage work. Lynn's out-of-control spending continued to escalate during their marriage. She bought a sports car, which she paid for with a credit card, and booked regular out-of-town vacations. Eventually, Glenn took on a second job at a gas station to manage the couple's growing debt, and by 1995, he was working nearly seven days a week just to cover the bills. Finally, Glenn decided that enough was enough. In February of 1995, he started making plans to move out of the couple's home and file for divorce. Before he could make that move, Glenn got very ill. On February 28th, he called in sick to work, complaining of severe stomach pain and a high fever. His wife tended to him while he was sick, feeding him easily digestible foods like soup, sweet tea, and jello. His illness persisted for several days, and on March 2nd, he went to the emergency room. He was treated for his symptoms and began to feel better. And on the next day, he was released from the hospital and went home to recuperate. That afternoon, after returning from running some errands, Lynn Turner found her husband dead in their home at the age of 31. An autopsy determined that Glenn died of natural causes. It was determined that he had an enlarged heart and that he had died of an irregular heartbeat. Glenn's family and friends were immediately suspicious of Lynn, but without the money to pay for a private autopsy, they had no proof. Four days after her husband's funeral, Lynn Turner put their house up for sale and moved to Forsyth County, Georgia, where she had grown up. Unbeknownst to Glenn's family and friends, Lynn rented an apartment in Forsyth and moved in with a Forsyth County Sheriff's deputy named Randy Thompson, who she had been secretly having an affair with for more than a year. Randy had no idea that his girlfriend had been married or that her husband had just died. Lynn collected Glenn's life insurance policy and used the money to buy a house for her and Randy. In January of 1996, Lynn and Randy welcomed their first child, a daughter named Amber. A son named Blake would soon follow. Randy asked Lynn to marry him and bought her an engagement ring. She barely wore the ring, according to Randy's family, and the couple never married. 
though Randy did name Lynn as the beneficiary on his life insurance policy. In 1997, at Lynn's encouragement, Randy increased the benefit amount on his life insurance policy from $100,000 to $200,000. By all accounts, Lynn did genuinely love Randy, but their relationship was not without its problems. In 1997, Lynn accused Randy of battery after he allegedly punched her in the mouth. He was sentenced to 10 months of probation and fined $400. Their relationship continued to deteriorate until finally in 1999, Randy moved out of the home he shared with Lynn and their children, telling his friends that he did so for his own sanity. In January of 2001, the couple made an attempt to reconcile. They went out to dinner together on January 19th and then back to Lynn's house for dessert. The next day, Randy woke up with severe stomach pain and a high fever. He went to the emergency room where he was treated and released. The next day, Lynn brought him some chicken soup and jello as he recuperated at home. By January 22nd, Randy Thompson was dead. His cause of death was listed as an irregular heartbeat, just like Glenn Turner's. He was 32 years old. On the day of Randy Thompson's burial, Lynn reached out to his insurance company to file a claim for his benefits. She was surprised to learn that Randy had let the policy lapse and she only collected $36,000 instead of the much larger sum she had been expecting. Always a woman who liked flashy cars, Lynn had reached out to a car dealership to ask about borrowing a car for her boyfriend's funeral. By pure coincidence, Glenn Turner's former sergeant was working at the car dealership at the time of her phone call when he found out that another man who had been close to Lynn had now died under mysteriously similar circumstances, he started raising alarms. He reached out to Randy's family and friends, who contacted the police departments in both Cobb and Forsyth counties, and also to a reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The paper published a series of articles highlighting the similarities in both men's deaths and suggesting that Lynn was not just the romantic link between them, but also the messenger of their death. The publicity was enough to cause investigators to re-examine Randy's autopsy results. A forensic pathologist from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation found a significant amount of calcium oxalate crystals in Randy's kidneys, which is a telltale sign of ethylene glycol poisoning. Ethylene glycol is an industrial compound used in a variety of consumer products, including antifreeze. It is odorless and has a sweet taste, and it is toxic if consumed. Police now believed that Randy's death had been a homicide. Investigators exhumed the body of Glenn Turner and found calcium oxalate crystals in his kidneys as well. They were able to confirm that Glenn and Randy both had been poisoned with antifreeze, which Lynn likely administered to both men in the soup and jello she had served them shortly before their deaths. In November of 2002, Lynn Turner was arrested and charged with the murder of Glenn Turner. She stood trial in 2004, and prosecutors introduced evidence of the similarities between the deaths of Glenn Turner and Randy Thompson, though Lynn had at that point only been charged with Glenn's murder. She was found guilty at that first trial and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. Cobb County District Attorney Patrick Head said about the case that if she hadn't done it twice, she'd have probably gotten away with it. In 2007, Lynn Turner went back to court to stand trial for the murder of Randy Thompson. This trial lasted just 12 days and resulted in another guilty verdict. She received another sentence of life in prison, this time with no possibility of parole. On August 30th of 2010, Lynn Turner was found dead inside her cell at Georgia's Metro State Prison. Her death was ruled a suicide, caused by an intentional overdose of the high blood pressure medication she had been prescribed 
and was hoarding at the time of her death. For a live discussion of this week's cases, join me on the Stereo app on Tuesday, August 31st at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. For more true crime content, follow me on Instagram at Murder Minute and on TikTok at True Crime Headlines. Next week, I'll cover the case of a teenager who murdered his adoptive parents and then tried to claim in his defense that he was genetically predisposed to commit the crime. Until then, I'm Mrs. Smitty, and this has been your Murder Minute.